For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Romans chapter 8. If you are here with us last week, Romans chapter 7, we read of one approach to spiritual growth, the approach that we humans are most apt to come up with. This is the follow the rules approach. This is where you get the list of what you're supposed to do and you try to do it as hard as you can. And Paul describes his struggle trying to serve God in the oldness of the letter of the law. We saw that as he wrestled with the law, we saw that the law not only defines sin, but it also stimulates sin. It makes us want to sin more. There's something in us that when, when we're told not to do something, part of us really wants to do it. And then the other part of us that follows it gets really proud when we do follow that rule. Both are problematic. There's an inner tension and a wrestling as we find ourselves not doing the thing we want to do and doing the very thing that we don't want to do. And there's this cycle of inner tension and wrestling and going back and trying harder and looking at the laws and looking at the rules and trying to follow the rules. And finally, we just get worn out, flailing and struggling. And some people are apt to give up at this point and just think this whole God thing is not for me. Other people are inclined to be like the Pharisees and fake it. And they pretend like they're doing it and they put on a happy face like an actor on the stage and they try to keep everybody at arm's length because they can't let people come close and see who they really are. But if the law has its proper effect, it will break us and drive us to dependence. And Paul describes the end of his struggle in Romans chapter 7. We finished last week with 7... 22 through 24, he says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power, this law makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he moves on and he answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, he summarizes, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. There's a part of me that wants to do the right thing. But on the other hand, there's another part of me, my flesh, that serves the law, the power of sin. And this, thank God, is not where the book of Romans ends. This incredible failure of Romans chapter 7. No, and some of us, we may find ourselves in Romans 7. This, what we're putting forth this week is the positive what God does put forward as the way to spiritual growth. And we're gonna read, really as we see, there's a war going on within the Christian. You know, this is not a struggle of Romans 7 that's describing a non-Christian, this is a Christian. This is someone who has received the forgiveness through Christ, has received God's Holy Spirit. There's a part of you that wants to do the right thing, but there's a part of you that still doesn't. Here's you, and on the one hand, we saw we have what's called the sinful nature in some translations. In other translations, it's called the flesh. But this is the part that once you become a Christian, it's still there, it's still like, it's almost like allergic to God and to the law of God, and it does not want to do the right thing. And it's kind of that rebel side of you. Um, On the other hand, the Christian also has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside. We receive the Holy Spirit when we become Christians, and the Holy Spirit is never going to leave us. And so there's this battle between the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit that Paul is describing there. Fortunately, God has not saved us and left us on our own. The key to spiritual growth that we will see tonight, the key to walking according to the Spirit, is this right here. You need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit instead of the things of the flesh. Set your mind on the things of the spirit instead of the things of the flesh. In other words, you, if you set your mind on the things of your flesh, you're gonna get one outcome. If you set your mind on the things of the spirit, you're gonna get a different outcome. So we're gonna talk about what those outcomes are and what that looks like. Romans 8.1. He says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul starts and ends Romans 8 with possibly the greatest statements in the Bible on the security of the Christian. This phrase, in Christ Jesus, that is Paul talking about every single Christian. No matter how good you're doing, no matter how bad you're doing, if you are in Christ, and the language is very important to understanding Romans 8, in Christ Jesus is how he refers to a Christian. In the flesh is how he refers to a non-Christian, and I'll say more about that in a little bit. But this verse, he says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends the chapter by saying there is nothing 
Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor the future, nor any, anything in heaven on earth, under the earth, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I remember spending the first year and a half of my Christian life in Romans 7 and rustling and struggling and failing and vowing and trying again. And then I was at home church and I was talking with someone and he said, and he said have you seen Romans 8.1? Because I was telling him about my struggle. And I've read, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I can't tell you the incredible sense of relief. It's like all of a sudden the gun was off the table. I could admit to the struggle that I was having. I could, I, I could rest in the security of God. There is now no condemnation. This is the starting point for spiritual growth. And the reason Paul puts this right at the end of Romans chapter seven is because he's saying, therefore, in spite of all this struggles, in spite of all this sin, there's no condemnation. You know you're gonna be in heaven. And, and fear of threat, a lot of Christians think that the way to, to whip other Christians into shape is by threatening them with hell. You know, you're gonna lose your salvation, you're gonna to go to hell. That's not Paul's approach here. Fear of threat simply does not work when it comes to spiritual growth. I mean, fear of threat's good for some things, like if you're constantly late to work and your boss is like, look, you need to get her on time or you're gonna lose your job. That might get you to work on time. You know, the civil government might have laws like you can't rob this store or you're gonna to have to pay consequences. It might keep you from robbing the store. But when it's something like spiritual growth, when, when the law is love God and love one another, fear, threat, motivation simply is not gonna accomplish love because there's no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. First John 4 says, Romans 7 mentions law 31 times and only once the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times. That's the big difference between Romans 7 and 8 is the Holy Spirit, and you're gonna see the difference. Some of our translations have a second half to verse one. It says, no condemnation for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, that seems to drain all the security out of the first half of that statement. You can never go to hell unless you're doing something wrong. It's like, well, undo the first half of verse one. Um, the reason it's not in some of our translations, the reason I've got it in italics here is because this is, this is what's called a copyist error. Um, this is not in our earliest and best translations. This is in the King James Bible because in 1607 when that Bible was written, they were working with the best manuscripts that they had. This one doesn't appear in any manuscript before the sixth century A.D., We've got manuscripts that are several hundred years older than that that we found since 1607. And so the King James Version, I mean, it was awesome for 1607. But there were a lot of things that were awesome in 1607, <laughs> like wooden teeth and corsets and sailing to the new world. <laughs> and we simply have made some advances in all those areas since 1607. The, the science of, of the study of biblical manuscripts is incredible. Some people are like, oh, well, you can't trust the Bible because it's been translated hundreds of times and it's like a big game of telephone. No, it has not been translated hundreds of times. The Bible you have in your hands has been translated once. They've taken the thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts that we've, we have and they've sifted through them and they've used advanced dating and other linguistic techniques to find which are the families, which are the, the copyist errors, which are the oldest, and that is the manuscript that is then used to translate into our modern Bibles. What, what that will help us to find then is what's called copyist errors where you ever have, you ever have a thing where you're writing uh, you know, a paper and you write the same word two times in a row? or you're reading and you read one line and then you go back and you skip a line or you read the same line again. The ancient copyists, they had similar problems as well. And they were pretty careful, but occasionally they get it where they look down too low and they write that phrase up higher than it should be. And so if you look down just a couple verses later, um, it's either verse three or four, it ends exactly the same way, who did not walk, I think it's verse four, who did not walk according to the flesh but the spirit. That just accidentally got transposed up and then other manuscripts were copied from that. And so that's what you have here. Normally these copyist errors don't affect the meaning at all, um, but occasionally they do, like in this case here. Should this shake our confidence in scripture? Some people are like, oh, I just can't trust my Bible. I would say the opposite. For me, this makes me trust my Bible more. The fact that we know this is a copyist error, the fact that we have so many thousands of manuscripts and incredibly um, comp complex scientific approaches to determining which is the right one. And so um, 
That's why you might see it in some translations of the Bible, but um, most, most modern translations have corrected for this. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Well, Romans 7, 7 through 24 describes how the law brings sin and death. And we said last time that the word death is often used metaphorically, and I think consistently, especially in Romans 8, uh, the first half of 8 that we'll study tonight, death is used for defeat. Death is used for the defeat that comes when you come under law. Whereas Romans 8 describes the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It paints a very different picture of the freedom of the life lived according to the spirit. He says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yes, Jesus Christ, the eternal, from, from all eternity past, he existed, he was with God, he was God, John 1, 1 says. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. He put on the likeness of sinful flesh. He, he knew no sin and probably did not, have, um, did not have sinful flesh, but it was the likeness of sinful flesh. And he lived the perfect life. And then as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Yes, he offered himself up as an offering for sin on the cross. And he condemned sin in his own flesh is what that's talking about. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. It's the great swap. He took our place so we could take his place. He took on our sins so we could become sons and daughters of God. And so this is the message of Christianity, not be a good person, but Christ was a perfect person. He died the death you deserve. You're guilty, but he died the death you deserve and you can receive his forgiveness freely. He did that so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, might be fulfilled. Notice the language there. First of all, the passive voice, not so that we can do the law. He could have said that. No, it's, it's the passive voice. So the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is the indirect approach to spiritual growth. It's not see the rule and exert my willpower to obey it. No, it's... God, I know, I know the laws of God, but I'm more focused on my relationship with him, on the truths he says about me, and then as I step out to obey, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in me. Notice the indirect route to the ultimate goal. We want the same goal as the lordship theologians that we talked about last time, two times ago. We want people to be more like Christ. The only difference is this way, the biblical way, the, the way described here in Romans is the one that's actually gonna get us there. And he also says this might happen, so that it might happen. It's not necessarily gonna happen. It won't happen all the time for all of us. But this is a, a possibility now because of what Christ has done on the cross. And it's fulfilled in us. What are the conditions? We need to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. How we walk, how we walk. It's like there are two paths before us and there's a little road sign, flesh, spirit. And we've got to pick a direction. He says, how are you going to walk? That's the choice that's before you. And the key to interpreting Romans 8, on the one hand, he says, according to. On the other hand, he says, in the flesh or the spirit. Remember I said earlier, in the spirit talks about your position in Christ. That's never going to change for Christians. In the flesh, well, that's who you are as a non-Christian. That can change. You can be transferred from in Adam to in Christ. And see the previous teachings for more on this. But when he says according to, he's very careful with his language. According to refers to our condition. This would be how I'm doing today, what I'm doing right now. That's my condition. And it's possible that you can be in the spirit, a Christian, and still walk according to the flesh. Now, if you're in the flesh, you can't walk according to the spirit because you don't have the spirit. But... What we want is we want to be not just in the spirit, Christians, but also walk according to the spirit. That's what he wants here. And as we do that, the requirement of the law is going to be fulfilled in us. A lot of our translations, they kind of muddle this in the spirit according to the spirit thing and it ends up not making sense. And a lot of commentators have missed this as well. So keep that in mind for Romans 8. 
And so again, we've got our sinful nature, we've got the Holy Spirit, and you've got you, and there's this battle for you. He says, those who are according to the flesh, condition. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Oh, those who are according to the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So how do I walk according to the flesh? Set my mind on the things of the flesh. How do I walk according to the Spirit? I set my mind on the things of the Spirit. That is one of the key differences here. Where do you set your mind? The battle is won and lost in the mind. Where do I turn my attention? So on the one hand, you've got the things of the flesh and I might set my mind on those. On the other hand, I've got the things of the Spirit, and I might set my mind on those. And the outcome, Paul goes on to describe in the next two verses. He says, the mindset on the flesh is death. That's not good. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Ah, that sounds nice. <laughs> he goes on to say in the very next verse, it's because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, because it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, because it isn't even able to do so. So you can see very clearly here, he's using death, you know, in the sense of defeat. What does it mean the mindset on the flesh is death? Well, it's hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It can't even do it. And so if you want the kind of life where you're feeling more and more hostile toward God, and where you are more and more failing to be the kind of person God wants you to be, then that's probably an indicator that you've been setting your mind on the flesh. However, if you want that life and peace, that victory, then you need to try to take as much opportunity as you can to set your mind on the Spirit. It's death versus life and peace. So let's imagine you're, you're somebody and you're setting your mind on the things of the flesh, and we'll talk about what those are in a moment. The more you do that, here's what's gonna happen. Your sinful nature, boom. It's getting totally swole. <laughs> you know, it's like you're just, this is like a well-balanced diet for the sin nature, right? It's just gonna get more and more control. You're gonna have less and less love for God. You're gonna feel more and more distaste and displeasure for God, for the things of God, for definitely for that home church meeting and the people there. Um, sin is going to seem more and more appealing. You're going to be trying to stop, but you're not going to be able to. And then you're just not going to be very excited about spiritual things. Fundamentally unspiritual person is what you're becoming, even though you have the Spirit if you're a Christian. On the other hand, if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, what starts to happen is this, the Holy Spirit begins to get more, it's not that you get more Holy Spirit, but it's that the Holy Spirit gets more of you. He begins to guide your desires. You find yourself wanting to do the right thing. Almost instinctively, the, the Bible calls it God writing his law in our hearts. We find ourselves loving the word of God and enjoying it. And we don't get into it because we have to, but because we really want to. And we find ourselves enjoying times of prayer with God. We find ourselves getting excited about spiritual things. Nobody has to force us to do anything. We're not, we don't have a checklist that we're trying to check things off of. We are eagerly pursuing it like a, like, a, like a romantic relationship that you're really into. Nobody has to tell you to think about your boyfriend or girlfriend. You just do it. And that's what it starts to become like with God. And so this is the, the decision we really have to make here. What would this include? The things of the flesh versus the things of the spirit. Well, Romans tells us a few things here. It tells us some things we've died to. For example, he says you've died to self. The old you is dead. Your old identity is dead. But now you're alive in Christ. And so why do we spend so much of our time thinking about ourselves? Why not spend more time thinking about Jesus Christ, reading about Jesus Christ, thinking about what was he like? Why not spend time on that? You know, we're so focused inward and self-focus is not, you know, we need to be aware of ourselves, obviously, but our focus needs to be on Christ and our new identity in Christ. Why not memorize some scripture learning what that is, our new identity in Christ? Why not thank God for that? 
instead of just constantly probing around for what am I feeling right now, we might say, yeah, I feel this, but God, I know this. I feel blank, and we can't skip that step, I guess. We do need to um, be aware and acknowledge feelings. Otherwise, you know, they're gonna be there either way. But we need to acknowledge the truth and affirm the truth and thank God for the truth. Just because you're feeling something doesn't mean it's true. I mean, imagine if I'm sitting here and I'm just like, I just feel so horrible. I just feel like I, I lost my legs. And now all I have is my arms and I'm gonna have to spend the rest of my life with no legs. Well, if that were true, that, that could be pretty depressing. But the important point here is I haven't lost my legs. <laughs> That's the truth. And a lot of us spend our time feeling sorry for ourselves for things that aren't even true, feeling how upset God must be with me, how disappointed he must be with me, how he doesn't want anything to do with me, feeling anxious about things of this life that are very temporary and fleeting away. We have all these feelings, and what we really need is we need the truth. We need to affirm and thank God for the truth and base our feelings upon the truth. We're dead to sin. So thinking about my sin would be something of the flesh, whereas, you know, the new law of love that God gives us, why not focus on that, what we should be doing, instead of what we shouldn't be doing? You died to sin. Some approaches to spiritual growth say the first thing you should do is just rattle off all your sins you've committed that day. What a terrible way to start your time with God, by focusing on something I'm dead to? Why not instead... Turn my eyes onto something else. I'm dead to the law. But now I have this new relationship with the grace of God. So instead of spending all of my time thinking about the laws of God and all the things I need to obey, why not focus on God's grace and focus on the wonderful truths that are contained there? Romans doesn't mention this one, but Galatians 6 says, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. Why spend all of our time thinking about the things of this world when we need to spend our time thinking about heaven and eternity? I can't tell you how encouraged I have been by the times I've read readings on heaven, books like Randy Alcorn's Heaven and other ones that he has written. Man, that stuff gets to me like nothing else. Every time I read those things, I just feel like I have some vitamin deficiency and I'm finally eating the food that contains the thing that I've really been needing. I feel my heart strengthened and warmed and encouraged and often brought to tears thinking about heaven. Yeah, that's what we need. Jesus said, you can't love God and money. You're gonna love one and hate the other. So we need to make sure our affection and our attention is focused in the right place. And so we need to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, how I'm alive in Christ, how I can love other people, the grace of God, heaven, eternity, where I'm headed as a Christian, guaranteed. And uh, if we're honest with ourselves, 95% of our thought life, at least, is the column on the left. But what's amazing is if you can rip your focus off of that onto the things of the Spirit for even a few minutes at a time, what you'll find is what you feed grows. You know, your spiritual life, it's like a garden that has two very different kinds of plants. One is a sun-loving plant. It loves the sun, can't get enough of it. If it could get 24 hours of sun per day, it would take it. And that thing would spread and thrive throughout that entire garden. The other kind of plant hates the light, loves the darkness, shrivels up and dies when the, when the light shines upon it. And you're the gardener. You've got to decide, which plant am I going to fertilize? Which plant am I going to feed? Which plants am I going to give the nutrients and other requirements that they need? And that, over time, it's not something that, that you know, you do once and all of a sudden it's good. You know, gardening takes time. But over time, the plant you feed will grow. And you'll find yourself shockingly becoming a more spiritual person, even with a little bit of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. And what will happen too is you'll want to do it more and more. 
Yes, our sin nature thrives on the things on the left. The Holy Spirit will get more of you as you set your mind on things on the right. And you are like this garden. So what's it gonna be? You're the gardener. Well, Paul goes on. He says, those who are in the flesh, non-Christians, that's a positional truth, cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit because you're Christians, he says to his audience. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, by the way, notice how many different names he has for the Holy Spirit just in these couple of verses. He's got the Spirit, now he's got the Spirit of God. And part of what he's saying here is every Christian has the Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. God, if, if, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, there's another name for the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, so it's not just we're in Christ, but Christ in us. Although the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yes, this is, again, he's talking about, you know, on, on its own, your body can't do anything. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, he gives this, this victorious spiritual life to your body, and he enables you to do righteousness. And he says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. Oh, no. Here comes Paul, back in with the law. I knew that was too good to be true. I knew the law, I knew I needed the law, yeah. <laughs> you gotta finish the sentence. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. The word is a little awkward, but what is he saying? We're not obliga under obligation anymore to live according to the flesh because he set us free. So it's not an obligation that we have, but an obligation we don't have that he says in Romans chapter eight, verse 12. Legalistic preachers love this verse, but they don't pay very close attention to the words because it doesn't support their screaming at Christians and threatening them. He says, look, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Another favorite of legalistic fear threat preachers God's gonna send you to hell, Christian, if you are living according to the flesh. No. What's he saying? If you're living according to the flesh, notice the footnote in the NASB, it says you must die or you're going to die. And remember how he's using death here. Like he said just a few verses earlier, death defeated by sin, hostile toward God. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. He, it's the same context. He's using death the same way. If you're living according to the flesh, you're gonna, you're gonna be defeated. You're gonna be hostile toward God. You're gonna experience those negative things. You're not gonna have the life in peace. Notice how you must die is parallel with you will live. It's not we're gonna drop dead physically or that we're gonna suddenly spring to life. No, it's the difference between victory and defeat. Defeat and victory over sin. He says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, this is sort of an interesting one too. How do we put to death the deeds of the body? You read some Bible teachers and they're like, we gotta take our sin, we gotta grab it, we gotta pin it to the ground, we gotta tell it no, we gotta beat it up, we gotta leave it for dead. <laughs> take no prisoners. <laughs> okay. That's not what he's teaching here on Romans 8. How do we put to death the deeds of the body? It's by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body. And so, two ways it, it talks about this in Scripture. One is God will bring suffering into our lives and we will experience fellowship with the death of Christ that we can attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.11, for example, a book we just studied. He says, he talks about how we're being given over to death constantly. Death works in us, but life works in you. We're given over to death so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies, he says in 4.11 of 2 Corinthians. 
Yes. In fact, later in Romans chapter 8, next time we're together, we're going to learn more about this, this death process and how suffering chips away at, our, at what Scripture calls our outer man so that the, the thing on the inside can shine through. He says it's almost like we're this clay pot with this treasure inside, this light inside. And the more we go through suffering and respond properly to it, the more the clay pot is chipped away and the light on the inside can shine through. So that's partly how we put to death the deeds of the flesh is by responding correctly to the death that God brings into our lives through suffering. The other way is death by starvation. How do you put to death the deeds of the flesh? Well, you stop feeding it. Just like the way you kill those darkness-loving plants in your garden, you stop giving them light. Or you start giving them light, actually. For example, Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Yes. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. That's, the, again, the opposite of our intuition. Our intuition says, don't carry out the desire of the flesh. Don't carry out the desire of the flesh. <sighs> that's, not, that's not God's way. No, he says, walk by the Spirit, and you'll find yourself, whoa, I can't believe I'm not doing that anymore. I can't believe I don't even really want to do that anymore. I can't believe that sounds kind of gross right now. You'll find a willpower you didn't have before, but it'll be different because it'll be generated from a love relationship. It'll be changed from the inside out. There'll be a, have been a change in your mind, which then results in a change in your actions. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Yes, the Spirit is always leading you if you're a son or daughter of God. We don't always listen to him, but he's always leading. Even if we're rejecting his leadership, and that's his transition to his final topic and our final topic. He says, if you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, the old way, under law, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba. <laughs> the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we're heirs also. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So what is Paul talking about here? Why does he say adoption is sons and then he switches to gender neutral language in verses 16 and 17? Children, children. Why not adoption is children? Why not adoption is sons and daughters? Adoption is sons, all one word. And uh, normally I'm in favor of gender neutral language um, I think that's a good movement, but I think in cases like this, this actually needs to be translated this way. And the reason is because of ancient adoption practices. The way this works, they didn't adopt infants, typically, or one or two-year-olds. The practice he's talking about here is something that would happen to an adult, would get adopted. F.F. F. Bruce says, in the Roman world of the first century AD, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was in no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. Yes, you'd have a situation where you had a father, where you had a, a, a guy, in some cases, who didn't have a son at all. In some cases, he didn't have a son at all. And he's like, look, I've got this estate. It's basically the family business. I've got all this money and I've got no one to leave it to. And so he would scan over maybe his household employees, his servants, and other people as well. The father, the adult male, would, he'd scan across his servants, employees, other people he knew, and he was thinking, who can I pick to inherit my estate? Who can I pick to carry on my name? There might also be cases where he had sons, but they just weren't suitable for that task. And so he would go and he would select someone. He would say, I want you to take on not just the family business, but my name and to become my adopted son. That's something that happens as an adult. Be selected for a specific purpose. And that was not something that women were eligible for. That never happened to women. 
That concept would have been unknown. And so when Paul says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, half his audience were women. And he says, ladies, you've gotten what you could never get in Roman society. You, the owner has looked out and he selected you to be his. You are the one that's gonna inherit the estate. You are the one to take on his name. You are the heir. And that would have blown the minds of his female listeners. This is not a, something that's repressive toward women, but actually incredibly, shockingly progressive toward women. He says, you, yes, you. And this is consistently, the Bible throughout is always ahead of the culture on women's rights. Jesus especially was. And so a spirit of adoption is son, so God has selected you. But what's interesting is Paul is mixing metaphors here. He says, you received the spirit of adoption as sons, which happened to grown-ups. And by that spirit, we cry out, Abba. Which is something for babies. Abba. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The Atlantic ran an article a couple years ago. The title was, Why Mom and Dad Sound So Similar in So Many Languages. They survey babies of the world. What is Abba in other languages? French, Maman and Papa. Norwegian, Mama and Papa. Welsh, Mam and Tad. <laughs> Swahili, Mama and Baba. Philippines, Nane and Tatai. Mandarin, Mama and Baba. Chechen, Nana and Da. <laughs> Inuit, Anana and Atatata. The most basic, the only sounds, the first sounds a baby can make. Mama, Papa, Abba. And he says, the spirit of adoption enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. Paul got this from Jesus. You read the Gospels, you read Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the, you know, pretty much the whole thing's in Greek, Mark's gospel, but then when he gets to this point, he says, Abba. Such an intimate term to address the God of the universe. It's an Aramaic term, it's not a Greek term, but he leaves it untranslated because it was so important. Paul brings it up here, he brings it up in Galatians chapter four, Abba. This is the spirit in which we should approach our heavenly father. Jesus taught us to pray our father. There's so many titles he could have picked. Our creator, our judge, Oh, righteous one. But he says, Father, Abba. English would be Dada or Daddy. Something that, uh, the first words of the littlest baby. In prayer, he always, Jesus always addressed God as Father. Always. Except one time. Do you know when that was? On the cross as the judgment of the Father was being poured out upon the Son, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The heart cry of his deep emotions, experiencing some sort of forsakenness, some sort of separation from the Father for the first time since eternity passed. The Father had loved the Son since before the world was created, Scripture says, and he's never got tired of him. There's never been any separation. And then on the cross, when he who knew no sin became sin, so we might become the righteousness of God, Jesus gave up for a moment that close Abba relationship so that we could have that relationship forever. He became sin so we could become sons. At Jesus' baptism, we see the Father Normally doesn't speak from heaven. Couldn't help it this time. He's standing there in the audience. And he goes, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You're gonna see the dad at the basketball game screaming out from the stands. This closeness. Why does he bring this up in this context of spiritual growth, in the context of setting your minds on the spirit? The spirit is the spirit of adoption as sons. This is one of the great things we set our minds upon. This is where we turn our attention. 
Andrew Murray with Christ in the School of Prayer says, Jesus would have us see that the secret of effectual prayer is this, to have our heart filled with the Father love of God. We need to see the love of the Father for his child. It's not enough for us to know that God's a Father. In fact, Father might have no meaning to some of us. It might have negative connotations to some of us. You've got to let God refill that word with the meaning it should be filled with. This may be the problem in your prayer life and in your spiritual life in general is because you're lurking with the wrong conception of Father. It's not enough to know that God is a Father. He would have us take time to come under the full impression of what that name implies. We must take the best earthly father we know. We must think of the tenderness and love with which he regards the request of his child, the love and the joy which he grants every reasonable desire. We must then, as we think in adoring worship, of the infinite love and fatherliness of God to which the greatest father you've ever seen doesn't hold a candle to. Jesus says, the greatest father you've ever seen, you'd call him evil if you could really see the love of the father. We must consider how much more tenderness and joy he sees us come to him and gives us what we ask aright. Lord, teach us to live with the father so that his love may do be us nearer, dearer, clearer than the love of any earthly father. Lord, show us that it is only our unchildlike distance from the Father that hinders the answer to prayer and lead us on to the true life of God's children. Lord Jesus, it is father-like love that wakens childlike trust. You want to grow your faith? Get in touch with the father-like love of God. Most of us here aren't fathers. I am. I normally don't talk about my kids at CT. When my daughter was first born, I talked about her four CTs in a row. <laughs> and one of the older guys was like, you can't really do that. <laughs> it's not quite as interesting to everyone else. And uh, none of them have kids. But uh, there are certain teachings where I'm forced to talk about them. But I thought it was interesting that my first instinct as a father was just to talk about my kids all the time in front of people. Um, the past day of my life as a father was a great day. Yesterday, I was out in the yard working. I made my kids come out and help for a little bit. They're 9 and 11, by the way. And um, once I got them out there, they were like, thanks for making us work. This is so much fun. I was so proud that they were loving hard work. Here's my son with a nail gun, putting some nails in the fence here. My daughter does not like the loudness of the nail gun. I'm just so proud of him there with the, with the nail gun, you know. He was sitting there asking this other guy from our home church about his life, asking what it was like growing up, working construction. My heart was so full of joy listening to my son ask someone else a question about their life. Then... <laughs> My wife took my daughter out to her brand new junior high cell group. So it's dude night now. So we rode our bikes to Skyline Chile. Because what else would you do on dude night? <laughs> and um, used the gift card that he worked hard to buy for me for Christmas. And um, just sat and talked and watched the baseball game and just talked about whatever, rode bikes home, talked. What's surprising as a father is how hard it is to get your kids to talk to you sometimes about real stuff and just always looking for opportunities, always really happy when they talk. That's how our Heavenly Father feels. Really happy when we talk to Him. Wishes we would do it more. And then uh, we got home and um, uh, Matt got out his book he's working on. It's called Daredevil Life. <laughs> you can see there's a skateboard, a climbing wall, and spikes. Let me read you just a few highlights. This will be coming soon to bookstores. Boom! <laughs> woo woo! This time he is staying here, operation. <laughs> but you know, the nurses start talking, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's sneaking off. 
Where did he go? I don't know where he got that other word bubble from. Which brings us to chapter two, learning the hard way. This one, this is quite a scene. The sign on the right says, danger, shark pit. You can see he's got a skateboard. There's a little foreshadowing going on here. All the great authors do it. He says, who cares? Bad idea. Operation on the shark. Poor shark. Soon. Come back here! Daredevil life, man, he's at it again. You know, that's like one of my favorite books. On the one hand, it's terrible, but it is so awesome. We were sitting there and Matt goes, I'm on page 27, I've already drawn 12 ambulances. <laughs> but that's how, that's how God feels. He looks down at this thing that we make that most people would probably be like, that's pitiful. <laughs> and he's like, that's like my favorite book. I love it. Because my son made it. And he put his heart into that. And I love seeing the person that is him express itself. And I love seeing that grow. Breakfast this morning. I get out of bed because I'm like, I don't have to be anywhere at any certain time, but I'm like, well, if I don't get up now, I'm going to miss my kids before they leave for the day. So I get downstairs. It's, it, once I think that, it's not hard at all to get out of bed. Otherwise, I don't think I could pull myself out of bed. They get home from school, my wife takes them to the grocery store. They've got this whole routine at the grocery store, totally shameless. They start, they go over to the bakery, and they're like, can we please have a cookie? Blink, blink. And they get a cookie every time. If I tried that, I would not get a cookie. Can I have a cookie? The kids are shameless. They will take gifts. They're never like, oh, no, I couldn't accept that cookie. <laughs> and the audacity just to walk up to a store that sells things and be like, for me, can I have a free one? <laughs> and then they swing by the fruit area, and there's usually like a basket, and they grab a banana or something, and then they head to the balloon stand. And they're like, can we have a balloon? Blink, blink. <laughs> and they always get a balloon. And they walk out of that store with their arms full because they're kids. And God loves that about kids and he wants us to be a lot more that way. Shameless, the asking, just asking things that, you know, we're like, you don't have because you don't ask, God says. They get home from the grocery store and they sprint in. I'm trying to work on my CT teaching. I've got to teach 700 people here in two hours. And they're like, Dad, this is more important. We got three balloons today. All the rest of the Cinco de Mayo stuff. And they're showing it to me. And it was pretty sweet. It was not the normal balloon. It's like a sombrero and these shaker things. And... But I wasn't like, stupid kids, I have important things. No, I mean, my heart was, I just got this big grin on my face. I'm like, that's where my heart is. And I'll pull my heart back onto this. And that's the way God is. We're never an interruption to him. He's running the universe, yes. But he's glad to get interrupted by us. Something a lot more interesting to him. And then finally, the band concert tonight. That's why I had to get my teaching done early because of this fifth grade band concert that my daughter was playing the flute in. And let me tell you, It was out of this world. <laughs> they played a scale, and then a different scale. And then the grand finale, the classical masterpiece, Fireworks by Katy Perry. <laughs> and the flute line, man, they had the melody. It was amazing. It's funny, I don't remember seeing any other kids up there. 
I knew exactly where my daughter was. I knew what she was doing. And that's the way it is as a parent. And that's the way God is with you. Billions of people on the earth. But as the infinite creator God, he can tune in on you and be like, oh, there's my son. There's my daughter. Whoa, look at her go. Look at her play that flute. Incredible. He's fascinated. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you. This is the secret to spiritual growth. The father love of God. It is father-like love that wakens childlike trust. And Murray concludes, he says, Oh, reveal to us the father and his tender, pitying love that we may become childlike and experience how in the child life lies the power of prayer. As a father, I wish I could take my heart out and show you the love I have for my kids. Words cannot express it. It's there. And I'm evil compared to the love that God has for his adopted children, for you. So why not receive that spirit of adoption as sons? Why not take your seat? You must take your seat that is yours mentally, saying, I am seated at the right hand of God. I am this. I am that. And thank you, God. Actively receive from your Father, spending time hearing from Him, spending time talking with Him. He's there. He's got so much to give you. If you would just show up and receive. Give his father-like love a chance to waken your childlike trust. And that, the first half of Romans 8. Yes, Lord, there's some deep mysteries here. I'm really grateful that this is your way of spiritual growth. I thank you that you loved us before we loved you. While we were your enemies, you loved us. Thanks that you initiated adopting us um, as your own. And I'm thankful, God, that your love is so overflowing that he can even reach down and touch our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart so we can see how wide and how deep and how long the love of God is, Lord, to know the knowledge that surpasses knowledge. And that that would awaken that childlike trust. And that we would begin to see the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives, Lord. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.